0: Good morning. Uh, real quick, we do have Solomon's Sports today, men. If uh, you've been coming to that, we'll be in chapter 3 in our reading. And the second part is, if you have a bulletin and you have those notes, uh, you'll notice that the title is different. The literary bug bit me the last couple days, and I made a Charles Dickens reference in my title. So uh, the original title that I thought about on Thursday was Gospel Challenges, and that is most certainly what we're going to talk about today. Uh, But this kind of came to me in terms of we're really comparing the reaction of the gospel in two cities. Uh, And so naturally, I went my my literary way. So the gospel is decidedly simple. right? The, The person and work of Jesus Christ, his death and resurrection, even a child can understand it. But gospel ministry is often difficult. That's the case for a variety of reasons. One of which, to borrow a phrase, it it presents evidence that demands a verdict. One cannot remain neutral with the gospel. Christ is either who he says he is, the Christ, the Messiah, the Son of the living God, the only way to the Father, the only avenue for salvation, or he is not. If he is, then our entire eternity depends upon the gospel. If he's not, the gospel matters very little. As C.S. Lewis once said, Christianity, if false, is of no importance, and if true, of infinite importance, the one thing it cannot be is moderately important. It's everything or it's nothing. And so when presented with this exclusive and lofty gospel, the reaction is hardly ever neutral. To quote the Apostle Paul, the gospel is one of two things to those who hear it, an aroma from death to death or an aroma from life to life. Some will hear the gospel and believe, and that's a time of rejoicing and thanksgiving. Others will hear the gospel and reject it, sometimes violently. And here's the kicker in this counterintuitive Christian life. That ultimately leads us to rejoicing and thanksgiving as well. How so? Well, Luke told us back in Acts 5.41 that after being punished by the Sanhedrin, the apostles rejoiced because they had been considered worthy to suffer shame for his name. I, I know when we get into these stories in Acts, it's, it's sort of hard to relate. It's hard to put ourselves into these stories because nobody's ever picked up stones to stone us for sharing the gospel. Nobody's ever worshipped us as gods, as we will see today. It's really hard to get into that, 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 that story. But the fact is, your situation is similar in the sense that you have been commissioned to share the gospel, And there will be some that hear that gospel with joy and believe, and there will be some that reject it. And sometimes that affects relationships. Sometimes that affects family dynamics, friend dynamics, work dynamics. It it impacts a lot of different things. And so I, I would just say, as you try to get into the story and you try to see yourself maybe in the position of these apostles, don't feel like you have to be in an execution type of situation in order to relate to the difficulty in preaching the gospel. I think what we need to understand, brothers and sisters, is that we are not gospel businessmen. We're not gospel entrepreneurs. We're his bride. We're heralds of the king of kings. And our job is to preach the gospel unapologetically, to make disciples of Christ, and to love our enemies even while they gather stones to stone us. As we'll see next week, sometimes those stones even find their mark. But the gospel is a freight train, and we're just along for the ride. So this morning, we're going to follow Barnabas and Paul to two new cities, and both the audiences addressed in those two cities and the reaction to Paul's preaching in those two cities could not be any more different. And I think what that proves is that Satan will try myriad approaches to frustrate gospel efforts. He is a roaring lion after all, and so we must gird up the loins of our mind. We must put on the full armor of God. We must be ready to preach the word in all seasons and all circumstances. And we trust that the Lord is faithful to give the increase. Let me pray. Father, thank you for this morning. Thank you for our time together as your body, as your bride, as your church. We worship you this morning. We praise you this morning, Lord. We give you all the glory. Bless the preaching of your word. Let the truth of your word be clear. Uh, and may you be magnified in all that we We preach and teach and sing and pray this morning. Pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Here is our outline. Here are our two cities. We will briefly be in the city of Iconium, uh, and then we will move on to the city of Lystra, and we'll talk a little more about what's going on there because there's a lot more detail in that city. But two cities, two very different reactions. By the way, the cities we are visiting, if you're trying to put this in the larger New Testament context, these are the cities that Paul will be writing to when he writes the letter to the Galatians. So if you think about the subject matter of Galatians and the law and those different things, now you can kind of see what he's been dealing with. Let me hook up my thing or I'll get tangled up. Pause. (laughs) All right. So we were in Pisidian Antioch. We have moved down the road to Iconium. This whole area here is Galatia, and that's what we're looking at. Remember in verse 51 of chapter 13, it says, But they shook the dust off their feet in protest against them, the men that had rejected the gospel, and they went to Iconium. So from Antioch to Iconium. Not an easy journey. Iconium's about 90 miles southeast of Antioch. It's located on a plateau about 3,300 feet in elevation. Just to give you a picture, this is just outside the city, so you can kind of see the layout. That church down there is St. Helena's Church. It was uh, apparently founded by the mother of Constantine when she traveled through the area in the fourth century. But due to the streams that surrounded the city, Iconium was a very fertile agricultural area in an otherwise very arid region. It's kind of an oasis in the desert. One commentator described it as a garden spot situated in the midst of orchards and farms, but surrounded by deserts. It it made its money with those orchards and with the wool industry. It's a commercial center, and more importantly, several major trade routes can join here. So many people are passing through this city. It connected Ephesus to Syria and Mesopotamia. If you're traveling that route, you would have gone through Iconium. According to Greek mythology, Prometheus and Athena recreated humanity there after a devastating flood by making images of people from mud and breathing life into them. I'm not sure where they got inspiration for that story, uh, but it sounds like plagiarism to me. Iconium is from the Greek word icon, which, think, little image, that kind of thing. It was was a thoroughly Greek city. It was also a very Roman city by Paul's day. Uh, And, of course, there was a Jewish population there as well. So simply put, what Barnabas and Paul would encounter at Iconium was a cultural melting pot. It, it's a very diverse city. It was an ideal settlement in an otherwise difficult area. And there's, there's evidence that the city has been perpetually occupied. It's, if you're in this region, this is where you would live. Uh, the modern city is named Kanya. It's the fourth largest city in Turkey today with a population of over 2 million people. Let's get to our text. Verse 1. In Iconium... They entered the synagogue of the Jews together and spoke in such a manner that a large number of people believed both of Jews and of Greeks. So this is Paul's first visit to Iconium, but later it's going to have the distinction of being visited by Paul on all three of his charted missionary journeys. Again, the pattern is very consistent, major population center, straight to the synagogue. that's, That's the model, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. Now, we read last week and two weeks ago in chapter 13 in verse 46 what sounded like a very strong and definitive statement, a change in mission, if you will, when, it says, when Paul said it was necessary that the word of God be spoken to you first since you repudiate it, speaking it to the Jews, and judge yourselves unworthy of eternal life. Behold, we are turning to the Gentiles. And you think, okay, well, is he done with the Jews? Well, no, because Paul never forgot the primary audience for the gospel. Just a reminder, as Gentiles, we are beneficiaries of the new covenant, but that covenant was made with Israel. And so Paul honors and reaffirms that truth with his approach in every city. He, he enters on his missionary journeys and he goes to the Jews first and then the Greek. Paul never gave up on the Jewish people. In addition, at every synagogue, there would be God-fearing Gentiles, which gave him an, uh, an opening into the Gentile world. And the initial report in verse 1 is encouraging. A large number of people have believed, both of the Jews and of the Greeks. Ah, but we always get the other side, and that's verse 2. But the Jews who disbelieved stirred up the minds of the Gentiles and embittered them against the brethren. Not all believed. There's those two sides to the reaction to the gospel. And not only do those Jews who don't believe the gospel reject it, they basically put together a preemptive strike to stop the preaching of the gospel among the Gentiles. This is virtually identical to the situation we saw earlier in Pisidian Antioch. When it says they stirred up the minds, it's the same term used in chapter 13, verse 50. The NASB translates it there as instigated. The word embittered, they embittered them against the brethren. The Greek word is kakao. It means to render evil. It's the same word used in Acts 12.1 to describe the persecution of the church by Herod Agrippa. So this is serious business. The ESV, I like the translation, says they poison the minds of the Gentiles. They are poisoning the well for the gospel message. At least they are attempting to do that. Verse 3, interesting verse in the middle of all this. Therefore, they spent a long time there speaking boldly with reliance upon the Lord who was testifying to the word of his grace, granting that signs and wonders be done by their hands. This is an interesting therefore. It's, if this therefore followed verse 1, it would make a lot of sense, right? If it, if it, if it read, in Iconium they entered the synagogue of the Jews together, and spoke in such a manner that a large number of people believed, both of Jews and Greeks. Therefore, they spent a long time there. That would make a lot of sense. But it actually follows verse 2 the Jews stirred up the minds of the Gentiles and embittered them against the brethren, therefore they spent a long time there. That doesn't seem to be the rational approach. However, if we have a proper view of persecution, if we understand what persecution actually does to the church, I think it makes perfect sense. The power of the Christian witness is strengthened under trial. How? Because as Luke reports here, the believers are forced to rely more upon the Lord. When things are going well, we tend to trust in our own strength. When things are going poorly, we have to go to God. We have to lean on the Lord. Even though there was a strong resistance, the Lord was faithful, and Paul and Barnabas maintained their witness in the city. They're simply not going to back down from their God-appointed task. That's how important this is bring your persecution, bring your opposition, we have a divinely commissioned objective and we're going to preach the gospel. The content of their preaching is said here to be the word of his grace. I think that's another way to say the gospel. Once again, this is an intentional description. What was the major message in the letter to the Galatians? Grace over law. And so what does Luke describe, the content of the preaching here in the region of Galatia? The word of grace. These people needed to hear the word of grace. And to confirm that message and authenticate the, the ministry, what does the Lord do? He works signs and wonders by their hands. Second Corinthians twelve twelve says, The signs of a true apostle were performed among you with all perseverance by signs and wonders and miracles. And we'll come back to this in the next city as well. But what's the point of that? Paul is performing the signs of a true apostle. This is authenticating his ministry, making his identification as apostle unquestionable. Paul further confirms this miraculous activity in these cities uh, in the letter to the Galatians. In Galatians 3 5, he mentions signs and wonders being performed among these people. Verse 4 But the people of the city were divided, and some sided with the Jews, and some with the apostles. Well, we've talked about this in the past few weeks, but the gospel does what the gospel does. It divides the world into those who have believed and those who are lost. And unbelievers do what unbelievers have done throughout the book of Acts. Folks who otherwise have nothing in common will unite in opposition against the light of the gospel. Whether that's the Pharisees and the Sadducees, the Jews and the Gentiles, it's really an interesting thing when you think about it. They won't eat with one another but they will come together to stand against the gospel. Unbelief produces strange bedfellows, does it not? Textual note here, they are called the apostles. You go, wait a second, I thought there were only 12 of those. Well, here in 1414, both in this chapter, are the only times Luke uses the term apostles to refer to anyone other than the twelve. And I've mentioned before the distinction to what I call Big A Apostles and Little A Apostles, right? There are 12 Big A Apostles, or 13 if you want to add all that together, and there are many Little A Apostles. So even though Paul is a Big A Apostle, 1 Timothy 2.7, Luke seems to be using the term here as a more general term, especially in the sense that they are the apostles of the Antioch church that has been sent forth on a missionary. They are delegates. They are representatives of that church, and they've been commissioned for this missionary journey. I think it's very similar to the term diakonos in Scripture. If you've been with us Wednesday nights, we talked about that term as applied to the church office of deacon. But in many cases in the New Testament, it simply means servant. It simply means someone who ministers to another back to the introduction there's an important lesson here that we cannot be faithful to the gospel as a fellowship without possibly experiencing a measure of opposition if you think you are preaching the gospel to all people and nobody ever says boo about it you're probably not preaching the whole gospel and 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 if this is not our experience if we find that the world thinks well of us and speaks well of our gospel message, perhaps it may be a reflection of how much like the world we've become. We must be careful about that. Henry Smith said, God examines with trials, the devil examines with temptations, the world examines with persecutions. Quite simply, if we stand for Christ, some form of persecution is inevitable. All right, verse 5. It gets a little more serious. And when an attempt was made by both the Gentiles and the Jews with their rulers to mistreat and to stone them, don't miss that, they try to kill them, they became aware of it and fled to the cities of Lyconia, Lystra, and Derbe, and the surrounding region, and there they continued to preach the gospel. So the plot is very similar to the one perpetrated against Paul in Acts 9, that happened in both Damascus and Jerusalem, and in both of those cases, Paul escapes from the city. In this case, he and Barnabas do the same. One commentator said, It is a wise preacher who always knows when to stand his ground and when to leave for the glory of God. Make no mistake, these are lynchings. These, these are vigilante attempts to shut up the apostles. Just as it was in Jerusalem It would have required a regular Hebrew court to sanction illegal stoning. That's not what's going on here. Furthermore, it would never have been tolerated in a Roman colony, especially against a Roman citizen such as Paul. But notice, they don't flee to other cities to hide. Their motivation isn't fear. It's the urgency of ministry. They fled, and what did they continue to do? Preach the gospel. So we threaten your life with the gospel, shouldn't we find a place to lay low? Maybe get off the grid a little bit, maybe stop talking in the public so much. No, we go to the next city and we continue to preach the gospel. Have gospel, we'll travel. And as we're about to see, they flee into an area that most Jews would avoid like the plague. And, and, and this, this, to, to bring that culture, those cultures together, this is no easy task. These are not people that they relate to. These are not people they're even comfortable with, and yet it's a love for the lost. It's a passion to preach the gospel that drives them into a spiritually dark place because there's work to be done. Their lives were set for gospel work no matter what the cost was to themselves. They were moving onward and forward. There is no retreat in this gospel mission. They had the vision of Christ's call in their lives in mind. That's what guided their actions. That's what drove their initiatives. And that's exactly how it should be with us. There are always more boundaries to cross for the sake of gospel ministry. And I don't know what those boundaries are in your lives, but there's always another boundary to cross to be bold in preaching the gospel. So they moved down the road to the city of Lystra. Lystra was 22 miles southwest of Iconium. We'll get to Derby next week. Lystra was a market town in the region of Lyconia. It's the easternmost fortified city in the region. It was a Roman colony. It was set there to protect trade routes on the Imperial Road. It actually connected to Antioch. That was about 100 miles up to the northwest. During this time, also, a big construction project was undertaken in Lystra, and that was the construction of a temple to Zeus. More on that in just a moment. It would have been there when Paul arrived. Verse 8, we move to Lystra. At Lystra, a man was sitting who had no strength in his feet, lame from his mother's womb who had never walked. This man was listening to Paul as he spoke, who when he had fixed his gaze on him and had seen that he had faith to be made well, said with a loud voice, stand upright on your feet, and he leaped up and began to walk. The location of this miracle is not specified, but it makes good sense that it happened along a major thoroughfare. That's where often the lame people would be laid, because that was the most probability for alms and things like that. So probably at the city gates, and that makes sense because of what we hear later in this narrative. We also don't know how soon after arriving in the city that this event took place, but it's safe to assume that we've had some time pass. Why do I say that? Because we'll get to it in a minute, but in verse 20 or we'll get to that next week, in verse 20, there are disciples who come to Paul's aid. So if there are disciples, then people have been converted already. So he's been there for some time and and enough time to make some disciples. So it's possible, perhaps even probable, that this lame man had heard Paul speak before. But either way, he's certainly listening to him now. I think what's notable here, again, goes back to authenticating Paul's ministry. And he had to do this often. Think, again, the letter of Gala- the, to the Galatians. He has to authenticate his ministry with many of these places. That the parallels here to other apostolic healings should kind of jump off the page at us. This sounds a lot like a previous healing we have covered in Acts. Now, I know it was many, many months ago when we were in Acts chapter 3. But do you remember the healing at the beautiful gate in Acts chapter 3 with Peter? This is very similar. Let me show you. In Acts 3, it says a man lame from his mother's womb. Acts 14, a man lame from his mother's womb. Peter fixed his gaze on that man. In this verse, Paul fixes his gaze on that man. Peter was a little simpler. He said, walk. (laughs) Paul says, stand upright on your feet. Both men leapt up and began to walk. Luke undoubtedly wants us to recognize the parallels between the two healings. Why? Again, authentication of Paul's apostleship. What Peter did, Paul did. What Peter did as an apostle, Paul did as an apostle. If Peter is an apostle, Paul is an apostle. One important distinction in the Acts 14 text, Luke says that Paul recognized the lame man had faith to be made well. That's very common in Scripture. Luke notes it often in his Gospel. Four times in Luke's Gospel, Jesus tells an individual who has been healed, your faith has made you whole. So it was not mentioned explicitly in the Acts 3 narrative, but Peter seems to indicate in his sermon that followed that faith was integral to that healing. Let me show it to you real quick. In verse 16 of chapter 3, he said, And on the basis of faith in his name, It is the name of Jesus which strengthened this man whom you see and know, and the faith which comes through him has given him his perfect health in the presence of you all. But back to the lame man here in Lystra. Perhaps his faith came from hearing Paul speak to proclaim the gospel. I doubt Paul had many conversations that did not include the gospel. An important truth to remember about this faith And this is so important in our modern day that has so much false teaching in the health and wealth and prosperity world. This man's faith is this. He believed God could heal him, not that God would heal him. If we get that wrong, we either presume upon the grace of God or we relegate God to being our genie in the lamp, our in-case-of-emergency break glass, our divine ATM machine. That if we put the right pin in, he's supposed to give us our blessing. He's required to be at our beck and call. He's obligated to us. He's, he must deliver our desires on demand. No, that's not the case. The case is we trust the Lord whether he slays us or whether he heals us. In any event, the healing here is told with the utmost brevity. Not a lot of detail here. Paul directs him to stand. The man immediately jumps to his feet, begins to walk about. I would think probably skip or gallop or whatever you want to say around the way, cartwheels perhaps. There's no mention of the name of Jesus or the power of God, but we've been reading the book of Acts. We have sufficient examples to know that the only one that could make a healing like this happen is Jesus. But a a, a major problem arises here that Paul and Barnabas are now going to be forced to deal with. When people are focused on the miracles and not the message, It has the potential to go off the rails real quick. That these miracles are meant to authenticate the message. The miracles are not to make the miracle worker look great. It's to make God look great. Unfortunately, there is a fundamental misunderstanding. And this is quite the narrative, and let's spend some time there. Verse 11. When the crowd saw what Paul had done, they raised their voice, saying in the Lyconian language, The gods have become like men and have come down to us. And they began calling Barnabas Zeus and Paul Hermes because he was the chief speaker. (laughs) One thing before we get to the text, apparently there was no synagogue in Lystra because there's no record of them going to the Jews. This is also going to be the case when they get to Philippi later on. And based on what we will witness beginning in verse 14, this city is thoroughly pagan. That's what we're seeing right here. Not to say there were no Jews there. We know Timothy and his mother lived there, but they would have lived in a Greek household because of his father, and, and so they were much, much the minority in this city. Not enough people to warrant a synagogue. A synagogue was both geographical and the fact that you needed elders to run a synagogue, and apparently they had neither of those things uh, in that city. So, back to this crazy narrative they see the miracle undoubtedly a miracle, undoubtedly a divine act. They are right, something from heaven has done this, but they misascribe it, that the gods have come down, have become like men and come down to us. Why don't Paul and Barnabas shut this down immediately? Like, whoa, 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 that's not who we are. Well, the detail here that's important to see in all this, to kind of understand what's going on in this situation, is that they said this in the Lyconian language. Little small detail, but it's going to help us understand how this got out of, out of control so quickly. I'll do this very quickly, so don't nod off as we talk about languages. But, and, and I think we understand this: there are, there are language families out there, right? There are interconnectedness to certain languages in that several languages might find their origin in the same source. Uh, it can get a lot more specialized, obviously it's much more complicated than that, but a general explanation I think might be helpful here. For example, the Romance languages, they don't call them Romance languages because they make us feel all loving, okay? they're Romance languages, that's Roman, that's what it's from, and it's because the Romance languages are all derived from Latin roots. So, Spanish, French, Italian, Portuguese... Romance languages. Now, there are other offshoots of that, but those are four major ones, okay? and, and, and for the same idea, Semitic languages, Hebrew, Arabic, Aramaic, they all come from the same origin. So my point is that these languages have a lot in common, and so if you can speak Spanish, you might be able to get by hearing some Italian, because you're going to pick up about every third word, because it's going to be very similar, or French, or Portuguese, okay? But if someone's speaking a language in a different language family, you are largely lost, right? Because you have... Now, when you get to English, we're, we're the most dysfunctional, hodgepodge, <laughs> crazy language ever. Like, I feel sorry for people that come to this country and try to learn American English because we've got... You know, you, po- you polish the Polish furniture. You know, you lead and you lead. It's all the same spelling. You know, you know how to say this stuff, okay? It's weird, but if someone is speaking a language in a different family... You're, you're in trouble. As an English speak, speaker, especially if you've had exposure to a language, you might be able to follow someone speaking a romance language because we've borrowed a lot of our terms from that. And if you've had any French or Spanish in high school, at least might, you might pick up on some words. But unless you've studied languages outside of your language family, think Arabic, Hindi, Mandarin, Russian, if someone's speaking one of those languages, you won't know one word. They will just be saying a language and you'll just nod your head. Understanding is impossible in that. All that to say, this Lyconian language is even more complicated than that. Because one, it's lost to history. We don't even know what this Lyconian language was. There's no indication that, w- that it was ever even a written language. So this is entirely a regional language that was an oral language in transmission. So if you didn't live in this area of the country, you didn't know anything. There are no common words anywhere, a historic language of a local native population, not used by outsiders. So even for Paul, who spoke multiple languages, who is a linguist himself, this doesn't fit his linguistic categories. And so there's much talking, and there's much praising, and Paul's going, they're, initially they're going, they're excited, they've seen the miracle, perhaps they're all believing the gospel. This is, this is great, we're all celebrating. And by the time they figure it out, the priest of Zeus is bringing out sacrifices. Okay? It has gone way too far before they realize what's going on. And now you have two men in the midst of hundreds of people trying to stop the sacrifices from going on. That's how chaotic this has. They thought it was going well. It's not going so well. Let's take another little sidebar. Why Zeus and Hermes? Well, of course, Zeus was the sky and thunder god in the Greek religion. He's the chief god in that Greek pantheon. Hermes was the son of Zeus. He was considered to be the Greek god of trade. He served as the messenger to the gods. Think the little wings on the helmet. Okay, that's Hermes. Hermes was blessed with eloquence. The mythology says that Hermes invented speech. By the way, it's where we get one of our favorite theological terms, hermeneutics. That's the root word, the eloquence of all that. So it makes sense that an intelligent, eloquent speaker such as Paul would be identified by the people of Lister as Hermes. I mean, if he's a god, that must be the god of who he is, because he speaks so well. Maybe that led to the inevitable identity of Barnabas as Zeus. If it's Hermes here, Zeus must be with him. Maybe Barnabas looked like some of the Zeus statues (laughs) that were around. Maybe he had the same beard. Uh, uh, One other interesting note that colors their perception, and I think this this really puts us in perspective why this is going on. There was a legend in Greek mythology, And what do you know, it was traced to the region of Lyconia. It was written in uh, Ovid's Metamorphosis, that was written about 40 years before this event, but the legend is probably much older, that Zeus and Hermes had once descended to earth in human form, and they came to this area. That was the legend. In the narrative, they go to all these various houses and they're rejected, and they're treated poorly by all the citizens until they find this one good elderly couple, and that couple takes them in, feeds them, shows them hospitality. As a result, Zeus and Hermes turn their little meager cottage into a great temple, and they are made priests of that temple. Meanwhile, all the inhospitable neighbors are punished via a severe flood. And so, what's going on here? Well, if that's Hermes and Zeus, we know what happened to those people that didn't treat them well the last time. We better roll the red carpet out for these gods now that they've come to visit us. And so uh, here's the other interesting part. Scholars for a lot of years once argued against the narrative uh, by claiming that this area would never have worshipped Greek gods. They're too far off the Greek path to have worshipped Greek gods, especially in Paul's day. Well, in the 1920s, archaeologists found an inscription near Lystra. And it was a dedication to Zeus of a sundial and a statue of Hermes. They kept digging. The names of the dedicators are Lyconian. A stone altar near Lystra is dedicated to the hearer of prayer, presumably Zeus, and Hermes. Another relief near Lystra depicts Hermes with the eagle of Zeus. Another stone carving shows Hermes with, guess who, Zeus. (laughs) We don't need archaeology to believe the Bible, but boy does it keep reaffirming the historical truth that's there. Anyway, back to the narrative, verse 13. The priest of Zeus, whose temple was just outside the city, brought oxen and garlands to the gates and wanted to offer sacrifice with the crowds. I think this was the moment where Paul and Barnabas looked at each other and went, oh no, (laughs) this is not good. This picture here you see on the slide, it's a third century relief, but it depicts the bringing of a bull for a pagan sacrifice. Notice above the bull are garlands. That's exactly what we're seeing in this story. Sacrificial animals were often decorated with garlands before being offered. If you broke out the festive wreaths for the sacrifice, you knew it was a special sacrifice. So only the best for our visiting gods. And it would have been easy in the flesh, I think, even if you knew it was wrong, (laughs) to revel in this for a moment if you're Paul and Barnabas. It's ostentatious, it's crazy, but man, I'm I'm being carried on the shoulders of a city. Makes you feel pretty important. In Iconium, it's interesting that Satan had fostered persecution to distract from the gospel. In Lystra, he takes a very different approach. One commentator said, If Satan cannot derail Christian witness with persecution, he will try praise. Too much persecution has destroyed many preachers, and too much praise has ruined many others. Perhaps he can appeal to their ego, and perhaps that can derail the gospel message. But verse 14, when the apostles, Barnabas and Paul, heard of it, they tore their robes and rushed out into the crowd crying out and saying, Men, why are you doing these things? When Paul and Barnabas become fully aware of what's taking place, they take action. They tear their garments. Why does one tear their garments? Well, reasons in the Bible, we have a few. One is when someone mourns. You'll remember when David loses his sons, he will tear his garments. One is extreme distress. Joshua in Joshua 7, after they are defeated at the Battle of Ai, he and the elders tear their robes and then go to the Lord in prayer. It's also, and I think this is where it it comes home to this, in protest of blasphemy. Remember when Jesus says that he's the Christ, the son of the living God. Caiaphas tears his robe. It was actually considered a requirement among Jews. If you were a Jewish person and you heard blasphemy uttered in your presence, you were required to tear your robes to show your disagreement with the blasphemy. This situation definitely falls into category three. Paul and Barnabas are not about to be associated with this blasphemous act, with this idolatry. No matter how much people would come and listen to the gospel, they're not going to attribute it to Zeus and Hermes in a sacrifice. I mean, just two chapters ago, we read about what happened to Herod when he allowed himself to be worshipped as a god. Paul and Barnabas will not make the same mistake. Now, once Paul gets the attention of the crowd, he's going to take the opportunity to not only stop the activity but to preach a sermon of sorts as well, right? That's what preachers do. Give us a microphone if he had one at the time. We're going to preach a sermon. This sermon has the distinction of being the first sermon we come to in the book of Acts to an exclusively pagan audience. First time that Paul has ever preached to an entirely secular audience. By that I mean a polytheistic audience, A, a, a worldview with no knowledge of God, no knowledge of the Hebrew Scriptures, I think what we see here is a shorter snippet, a preview of the more developed sermon that Paul will deliver at Mars Hill in Acts 17. Very much the similar audience, but he has has a little more formal setting there. So what's Paul's approach? Well, he's going to start at the beginning. And in starting there, even though they don't know the scriptures, Paul will affirm the truthfulness of scriptures. Let's look at verse 15. We are also men of the same nature as you, And preach the gospel to you that you should turn from these vain things to a living God who made the heaven and the earth and the sea and all that is in them. In the generations gone by, he permitted all the nations to go their own ways, and yet he did not leave himself without witness. In that he did good and gave you rains from heaven and fruitful seasons, satisfying your hearts with food and gladness. He says, turn from these vain things. What vain things? The sacrifices, the false gods turn away from those vain things, and turn to a living God. He's alive, and he made the heaven and the earth and the sea and all that's in them. Paul's introduction has to do with the vanity of idolatry, the pointlessness, the futility of that worship. I I think if you read through the Old Testament and you see this, the authors of Scripture never miss an opportunity to tell us how stupid paganism is. (laughs) Read Isaiah and, and see how stupid and idiotic paganism is how 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 ridiculous idolatry is what's he saying any religion that would venerate men as gods is painfully empty it's it is painfully lacking we are are men of the same nature of you you saw us walk into this city we've been here for weeks you know we're just men what are you doing What that, that that's that's ridiculous pagan polytheism is vanity it's emptiness it's worthlessness idolatrous worship of gods who were not gods, let alone just men in the city. So he goes back to Scripture. There is one God, one God, Deuteronomy 6, 4. The Lord is our God, the Lord is one. And not only is he one, he's alive. He's not some dead piece of wood or stone, he's alive. And not only that, he is a creator God. And he is not a creator God, he's the creator God. He made the heaven and the earth and the sea and all that is in them. Well, that pretty much covers everything, doesn't it? He created everything. Psalm six six. that's probably where Paul is quoting this from, where it says, Yahweh who made heaven and earth, the sea and all that is in them. He he is commending them to leave behind idolatry and come worship the only one who's worthy of worship. In 1 Thessalonians 1 9, Paul commends the believers there at Thessalonica for doing what he's exhorting the people of Lystra to do right here that they turn to God from idols to serve a living and true God. Paul continues and says In the generations gone by, he permitted all the nations to go their own ways. And he did not leave himself without witness in that he did good and gave you rains from heaven. And fruitful seasons, satisfying your hearts with food and gladness. He is one, he is alive, he is the creator. Psalm 19.1, the heavens are telling of the glory of God, and their expanse is declaring the work of his hands. And not only that, this God is merciful. This God is long-suffering. Even as the nations went their own way, specifically away from the Lord. He didn't abandon them because he still provided a witness to himself. What was that witness? Creation itself. That you can't look around this world and think that anything else happened but a creator. This is providence. This is grace. On top of that, God had been sending rain from heaven. He had been causing crops to flourish. Fruitful harvest had brought plenty of food, which brought joy and gladness. Now, the idea of the gods providing is not a foreign thing to these pagan people. That was often expressed in their own worship, in their own writings. What was new is that Paul says all those blessings came from one God. Not all these other gods you worship. Only one God is powerful enough to provide all this. That all the benevolence of nature was from this living God. He is the source of all creation. Let's turn over to Romans chapter 1 because there is a similar argument being made here. Similar and yet different. Now, this is a familiar passage to many of us. Many of the Romans he was writing to came out of this lifestyle as well. And he says in verse 18, For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who suppress the truth and unrighteousness. Because that which is known about God is evident within them, for God made it evident to them. Creation, what's around them. For since the creation of the world, His invisible attributes, His eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly seen, being understood through what has been made, so that they are without excuse. For even though they knew God, they did not honor Him as God or give thanks, but they became futile in their speculations, and their foolish heart was darkened. Professing to be wise, they became fools and exchange the glory of the incorruptible God for an image in the form of corruptible man and of birds and four-footed animals and crawling creatures. What did he just elucidate? Idolatry. They should know God. They've seen God. They know this is true around them, and yet they exchange the creator for a creature. Paul's implication in Lister and in Romans is that these people had acted in ignorance to an extent, but they cannot remain in that ignorant state. Look around, hear the gospel, acknowledge the God that created you, and believe. They didn't have special revelation before, but now they do. They had general revelation, should have pointed them to God. Now they're given special revelation. They had not known the true God. Paul is revealing him to them now. They had not been held accountable. Now they were accountable. It's often been argued that Paul drew opposite conclusions here from the argument uh, that the natural providence in the Lystran sermon is compared to Romans 1. Well, it's true, but it's also true that in no way are these two texts contradictory. The basic premise is identical in both of these sermons. God has revealed himself in his works. God has shown himself in his creation. The context and the application are different because in the speech at Lystra and at the Areopagus in Acts 17, Paul used the argument from creation to build bridges. To say there is a God you can worship. Remember in Acts 17, he says, I see you are a very religious people. You want to worship. Let me show you the correct one to worship. While they may have never heard of God before, they had seen him in his providential works of nature. In Romans 1, Paul is seeking to establish humanity's responsibility before a just God. The Gentiles could not claim that they had no responsibility because they had received no direct revelation. They had received revelation in God's providence, in creation, in providing crops and they had perverted that revelation by worshiping nature. The, the Gentiles were thus without excuse. That's Romans 1.20. We simply don't know how Paul would have moved here because the, the sermon gets cut off. We don't get the rest of it. But if we went to Acts 17, we see what he says in that sermon. And I think that lines up perfectly with Romans 1. In Acts 17.30, he says, Having overlooked the times of ignorance, God is now declaring to man that all people everywhere should repent. You cannot go on in your ignorance. You now know you must repent to the living God. Verse 18, even saying these things, with difficulty they restrain the crowds from offering sacrifice to them. Pagans can be stubborn in their pursuit of idols. It must take a whole lot of effort to prevent this from happening. Remember, two men in the midst of hundreds, and they are excited and they are passionate and they are celebrating. You know, no amplification system. They have to shut this whole thing down. However, as we will see next week, by shutting down man-centered worship, they're going to set the condition for the pagans in the city to turn against them. This is it, that these people thought they had a picture of God. Zeus, Hermes, however they want to describe that, and they were excited about the miracle. And they wanted to honor Paul and Barnabas. And Paul and Barnabas says, no, no, you're not allowed to set the parameters for God's worship. He does that. He must be worshipped in spirit and truth. He must be worshipped in the right way. You're worshipping wrong, you are in sin. And when you tell somebody that, that tends to bring opposition. And that's what we will see next week. The whole city that loves them and wants to, carries them through the city and wants to offer sacrifices on their behalf, will now want to stone them in a couple verses. One saved by the gospel worships his savior, but one saving himself goes back to worshipping himself. So in conclusion... Let's talk about worship, which necessarily, I would say, brings us back to the gospel that we talked about at the beginning. Question, what is worship that is not centered on God? It's not a trick question. It's not worship. (laughs) There are only two options in worship, one that exalts God and one that exalts man. And here's the thing, man-centered worship might be exciting. It might be emotional might be informative, but it's not worship. Here's the problem, though. Every gathering that mentions God claims to be God-centered in worship. Everybody thinks they're God-centered in worship. These worshipers of Zeus and Hermes thought they were God-centered in their worship. God-centered Christian worship is the only legitimate form of worship. Why? Because our God is the only one who is worthy of that worship. A little etymology might be helpful here. A lot of language today, bear with me. The English word worship comes from two old English words. The first word is worth, or it's pronounced a little differently than that, but that'll work for our purposes. Worth and skip or Skype or become ship in modern English, which means something like shape or quality. So we can see the old English word ship in modern words like friendship or sportsmanship or championship. That's the quality of being a friend. It's the quality of being a good sport. It's the quality of winning a championship. So worship, more appropriately, is worthship. It's the quality of having worth or of being worthy. So we worship the Lord not because we feel like it, not because we think he's a better option than other gods, but we worship him because he alone is worthy. We draw near to God in worship. We ascribe glory to his name, It's before him that we bow down, before him that we kneel. We come before God with joyful songs. Everything in worship is God-centered and God-directed. Even as the Bible is read and preached, we are worshiping God by receiving and submitting to his word. Jesus commanded us in Matthew 4.10, You shall worship the Lord your God and serve him only. Simply put, worship is about God. But understand, it's not about God as an abstraction. We sometimes fall into this philosophical trap and God becomes sort of an idea. No, worship is about God as a person, not a little P person like us, but a big P person. He is real. He is alive. He has being. We're drawing near to him, not only that we might glorify him, but also enjoy him and enjoy him forever. True worshipers long to behold the beauty of the Lord. They seek his presence, that's where the fullness of joy is found. We're like the deer who pants for the water, thirsting for God. The God we seek is alive, he's real, and as we seek him, and not just an experience of him, not an experience of God, God himself, we glorify and we do indeed enjoy him. Why? What would make us dethrone ourselves from the center of our respective universes? Simple, it's the gospel. The gospel preached and the gospel believed. The gospel applied and the gospel embodied. If you were in Christ this morning, that means someone dared to stick his or her neck out and share the gospel with you. Risking rejection, possible alienation... Perhaps even hostility. And when I say that, I think of myself in my state before I came to Christ, that the gospel would make me mad. It wouldn't just be, ah, not really into that. It would make me angry. And yet, when that gospel was shared, you believed in faith. Why? Because the Lord called you. Because he regenerated you. He justified you. He adopted you. And he knew you belonged to him before the foundation of the world. And so he remains steadfastly at the center of our worship. He's why we gather, why we sing, why we pray. It's why we preach. It's why we love one another. It's why we serve. Because he alone is worthy. A gospel that glorious is worthy to be preached. And a God that merciful and that wonderful and that perfect is worthy of worship. So we praise the Lord. Hallelujah. Amen. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we give you the glory this morning. You are the reason we are here. You are the reason we have life. You are the reason we know things like joy and grace and mercy and hope. Lord, I pray that would drive us in our worship. I pray that would drive us in the way that we live our lives, in the way that we proclaim the gospel to others. Lord, people need not take up stones to stone us for us to be intimidated to preach the gospel, to share with friends, to share with family. Lord, I pray you would give us resolution to do those things. Give us strength to do those things, to stand up when the pressure around us says don't. And that your gospel would be proclaimed clearly, Lord, we give you the increase. You will, you will do that very thing you have promised to do so. Help us to be faithful in just sowing the seed that you've given us. That perfect gospel is the only way to salvation. Lord, thank you for our time this morning. Thank you for your word. We give you the glory in Jesus' name. Amen.